belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for June 19th, 2022 is called Practicing the Way of Jesus. The teacher is Shannon Barrowcliffe and the location is Clap Auditorium, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Good morning once again and welcome to Grace. If you're here in person, on the live stream, listening on the podcast, we're so happy to see you here today. So, growing up, my family had a very specific traditions when it came to celebrating Christmas. Christmas Eve was about time with our extended family. The big Christmas meal, it always included ham with applesauce accompanied by Martinelli's sparkling cider. And of course, presents. Christmas morning was rife with tradition too in the Deer household. The kids weren't allowed downstairs until my parents were in place with the camera and giant camcorder in hand. And we had two specific spots coming down the stairs where we had to stop for photo opportunities. Then it was on to the presents from Stana, the best, followed by stockings and a different room while canned cinnamon rolls warmed in the oven. And don't forget about the scratch-off lottery tickets. Those were a must. Even today, if the kids get to go home, these traditions are largely followed. Ask Mark. He's lived that staircase photo shoot many times now. Growing up, I could honestly say that I thought everyone's holiday celebrations involved watching A Christmas Story on TBS, elaborate meals on Christmas Eve, and over the years, this generally did become true, going to the theater on Christmas Day to watch the latest blockbuster. Obviously, this perception of the only acceptable holiday holiday celebration was way off base. As I moved about, expanded my friendships, and diversified my experiences, I came to learn the hard truth. No one puts applesauce in their ham. More importantly, I was able to learn that the world is abounding with amazing and unique traditions, whether they stem from a family's culture, location, heritage, or personal preferences. And they're all beautiful and should be celebrated, not compared to my inflexible idea of what a Christmas celebration should look look like. Now, what does my growth in accepting that other people can have different holiday traditions connect with the word of God? Let's dig into the text to find out. We're in Mark 7. Now the Pharisees and some of the experts in the law who came from Jerusalem gathered around him. And they saw some of Jesus' disciples uh, ate their bread with unclean hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they perform a ritual washing, holding fast to the tradition of elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. They hold fast to many other traditions, the washing of cups, pots, kettles, and dining couches. The Pharisees and the experts in the law asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, not, uh, but eat with unwashed hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Having no regard for the command of God, you hold fast to human tradition. He also said to them, You neatly reject the commandment of God in order to set on your tradition. 
sorry, in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever insults his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever help you have have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift from God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like this. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that can defile him by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles him. Now, when Jesus had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked about the parable. He said to them, are you foolish? Don't you understand that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? For it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and then goes out into the sewer. That means all foods are clean. He said, what comes out of a person defiles him. From the, for from within, out of the human heart, comes evil ideas, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil, deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, and folly. All these evils come from within and defile a person. Before unpacking that section of Mark 7, let's pause to remind ourselves where we're at in the story. Since his baptism in the Judean region near the Dead Sea, Jesus has been traveling up north throughout the region of Galilee to cities like Nazareth, Capernaum, and Bethsaida, and many smaller towns in between. During this time, we've seen Jesus call his disciples to follow him, teach in synagogues and in large open spaces, heal the afflicted, debate the Pharisees, and in the last chapter, walk on water in front of his, understandably, terrified disciples. The Pharisees Pharisees entered the story once more to ask questions and ostensibly undermine Jesus' teaching and practices. Let's pause real quick to talk about the Pharisees, their general role in Jewish society, and why Jesus seemingly puts them in their place so often in Scripture. The history of Israel's people is rife with persecution, violence, and captivity. This is documented throughout the Old Testament, and from roughly 598 to 538 BCE, the Jews found themselves conquered and held captive by the Babylonians. The Book of Amos, which was written approximately 200 years before the Babylonian exile, details how the Jews were extremely prosperous, but uh, internally corrupt. We're talking about the neglect of God's word, Uh, idolatry, pagan worship, greed, corrupt leaders, you name it. Amos delivered a warning of God's impending judgment and the vision of Israel's destruction, which turned out to be the Babylonian captivity. With that context in mind, the Pharisees, which was one of several groups or types of people, if you will, who emerged after the captivity, took on a pious view of the Jewish faith. That is, a mindset of absolute obedience and devotion to God's commandments. It was not uncommon for Pharisees to listen in on the teachings of traveling rabbis, question their credentials, and have public debates. Their framework was to ensure that God's laws uh, were being taught properly and upheld as if the freedom of God's people depended on it. So, their presence in Mark 7 isn't necessarily unusual or personal. After all, Jesus was proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. 
He was performing miracles on the Sabbath, healing the unclean, and eating with tax collectors. This was something to be seen and investigated. So when the Pharisees were asking Jesus why his disciples did not follow the tradition of washing their hands before a meal, it wasn't a personal attack. They would have asked any leader doing the same thing. In fact, they weren't really concerned with the surface level issue, the act of washing hands. Rather, they were concerned with the underlying one, why Jesus wasn't upholding their traditions in general. N.T. Wright explains this much better than I can. He writes, the charge Jesus levels against the Pharisees and legal experts is that by teaching as fundamental law what is in fact only human custom rather than divine revelation, they are guilty of hypocrisy, play acting. They are claiming to be teachers of God's truth and law, but in fact are only teaching human traditions. Remember, the Pharisees' main concern is upholding the law or the traditions that God gave his people. But they were so dedicated to this notion of absolute obedience that they often added to God's commands, commandments by upholding non-biblical practices, such as the washing of hands, as biblical. They held human traditions at a higher value than living out God's underlying call for his people to live a life different from those of the unbelievers. Jesus specifically calls out this hypocrisy with God's commandment, honor your father and, and your mother, and whoever insults his father or mother must be put to death. The intention of commandment number five and God's subsequent sentence of death for those who don't goes beyond speaking kind words and holding one's parents um, in high regard. It also meant taking care of them in whatever need they may have. This is where the practice of Corbin comes into play. Corbin, quite simply, is a sacrifice or offering to God among, uh, among the ancient Hebrews. Once Corbin uh, was decreed by someone, the Pharisees wouldn't allow that person to reclaim that commitment, even if the person was trying to take back that sacrifice in order to help their own parents. Essentially, the Pharisees would release, by their own authority, a child from supporting his parents. This practice nullified God's commandment. The Pharisees placed the sacrifice, that probably had some sort of monetary value, over the value of people. Jesus wasn't pleased with this man-made tradition, to say the least. Following this exchange, we see Jesus speak to a large crowd, followed by an intimate conversation with his disciples, with a message that today can seem quite controversial. In verse 15, Jesus states, There is nothing outside of a person that can defile him by going in. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles him. And later, starting in verse 18, he says, don't you understand that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? For it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and then goes out into the sewer. Thus means all foods are clean. Some have taken these verses, along with many others in the New Testament, to mean that there is no more food laws to follow. And if Jesus is absolving that law, what other laws do we no longer have to follow? And if there are more Old Testament laws we don't have to follow, how do we regard the Old Testament? And if you, you can see where this type of rabbit trail leads. In her book, Inspired, Rachel Held Evans perfectly encap encapsulates this thought and practice of cherry-picking scripture. She writes, the truth is you can bend scripture to say just about anything you want it to say. You can bend it until it breaks. For those who count the Bible as sacred, interpretation is not 
a matter of whether to pick and choose, but how to pick and choose. We're all selective. Let's not forget this human tendency when we read our Bibles. Let's challenge ourselves to recognize the preferences we place and hold our own understandings loose enough to allow the Holy Spirit to correct us when we stray off course. Now, Jesus isn't throwing out the Old Testament with these verses. Quite the opposite. With urgency, he's trying to tell the Jews, his disciples, the true motive behind the commandments. Quick side note, as a reminder, Jesus' original audience are Jews. However, Mark is recounting uh, the events for his Roman audiences, thus extra explanation with a parentheses, things like that. Like we already discussed, the Pharisees were very black and white with their interpretation of Torah. After this linear viewpoint was pushed and demanded of the Jews, but Jesus wants God's people to understand the original intention of the commandments, the intention and the expectation that carries on today. The commandments were given to not change outward actions or behavior only, but to transform the internal heart and motivations of a person. So what does this look like practically? In verse 21, Jesus gives a long list of actions uh, that can defile a person. In particular, he mentions murder. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Seems exceptionally straightforward. And I feel like personally, I am nailing the obedience of this commandment, and you probably are too. The commandment, do not murder, wasn't simply about committing the act of murder, but to teach us how to interact with each other, to teach us about our internal motives. It instructs us on how to be the kind of people God created us to be, the kind of people God expects us to be, not just the actions we take. Revisiting the earlier commandment about honoring your father and mother, it, this isn't just about publicly giving your parents respect. This commandment is about taking care of others, about having the heart posture that allows you to put others before yourself. The Pharisees, by holding fast to the traditions and upholding the traditions of the elders, attempted to order their society, their religion, in such a way that God was placed first and the needs of others was placed second. Jesus rebukes this prevailing thought. He wants us to put the needs of others on the same level as God. Elevating people's needs is honoring God. And Jesus demonstrates this in our next few verses. So starting in verse 24. After Jesus left there, he went to the region of Tyre. where he, When he went into a house, he did not want anyone to know. But he was not able to escape notice. Instead, a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek of uh, Syrophoenician origin. She asked him to cast her demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. She answered, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, because you said this, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus went out again from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon uh, to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking, and they asked him to place his hands on him. After Jesus took him aside privately, away from the crowd, he put his fingers in the man's ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. Then he looked up to heaven and said with a sigh, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately the man's ears were opened, 
his tongue loosened, and he spoke plainly. Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone, but as much as he ordered them not to do this, they proclaimed it all the more. People were completely astounded and said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Tyre and Sidon. We've seen these regions mentioned both in the Old Testament and New Testaments. While it was originally part of the tribe of Asher and probably best known for the birthplace of the Phoenician princess Jezebel, they are regions known for their wickedness, idolatry, and general unrepentance. So why would Jesus travel to such a place of unbelief? We don't have a definitive understanding of his move. It could have been to avoid a threat, um, or he wanted to teach his disciples in private. But we know it shouldn't have been an exceptionally welcoming place for Jesus, given the storied history of the region with the Jews. But it's here that we meet a woman whose daughter has been taken by an unclean spirit. From the text, we know that Jesus isn't particularly wanting anyone to come see him, yet he speaks and listens to the Gentile woman. At first glance, it feels like God's response to her plea is harsh, but we know that is not our Jesus. Quick context check. Children would have been analogous to Jews and dogs to Gentiles. So Jesus' response wasn't unsympathetic. Rather, he was creating a metaphor to explain his ministry priorities. Note the Phoenician woman's posture. She's kneeling at Jesus' feet. She's taking the position of the dog, the Gentile. She's humbling herself in the presence of the Lord, asking for the crumbs of the children. And it is in her response where she speaks truth um, while testifying to her faith that Jesus humbles himself in return. He submits to her argument, affirms her voice without, uh, sorry, affirms her voice, and is the only time we see in Mark where Jesus heals someone without being in their presence. This is putting the needs of others above tradition. And then we come to a deaf and mute man. Several themes emerge for me and how they connect throughout the entire chapter. Most shockingly, Jesus puts his finger in the man's ears, spits, and then touches his tongue. Talk about unclean, okay? I'd like to think he's antagonizing the Pharisees just a bit, given how they hold so rigidly to the ritual of cleaning, uh, but, but probably not. He's better than me. So why, but why would Jesus need to touch the man at all? He just demonstrated the healing of the Phoenician woman's daughter without even being in her presence, let alone touching her. This man's afflictions would have made him an outcast, someone without a literal or proverbial voice, someone to be forgotten. But Jesus didn't. He acknowledged this man's hardships by physically touching the afflicted body part. Healing gave this man his autonomy and authority back. And Jesus, yet again, demonstrated the importance of lifting the needs of another before the traditions or cultural expectations of men even holy men. So as the worship team makes their way back up and we prepare to take communion, I want to give us a chance to reflect on what Jesus was teaching throughout these 37 verses. As we take a minute or two to sit with these teachings of Jesus, and we will do this, you know me, I will make you do that. <laughs> I want you to reflect on your traditions, not just your big obvious traditions like Christmas or Easter, but your daily traditions. Reflect on whether those customs lift others up or if they actively avoid ways in which you can help people. 
upon wrestling with this text with my friend Liz in the back, uh, she asked the question, what unconscious decisions are you making that are robbing other people of their humanity, dignity, and value? Do you leave a full tip for your Sunday lunch meal? Do you ignore, let alone assist, the person asking for help on the side of the road? Do you take routes for your daily Starbucks run specifically to avoid having to make eye contact with the person on the median asking for money? Do you always keep your earbuds in while at work to avoid connecting with your coworkers? Do you uphold any traditions that actively, in the name of God or church tradition, impede your ability to see the unseen, give voices to the voiceless, or meet the needs of anyone you meet? Elevating people's needs is honoring God. Exalting the voice of the oppressed is honoring God. Practicing the ways of Jesus and having freedom in God is far better than holding any social or church norms. I'll leave you today with the remainder of the Rachel Held Evans quote I mentioned earlier. She writes, we all wrestle with how to interpret and apply the Bible in our lives. We all go to the text looking for something and we all have a tendency to find it. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this, are we reading with the prejudice of love, with Christ as our model, or are we reading with the prejudices of judgment and power, self-interest, and greed? Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.